0: I know many of you have uh, decorated your homes for this, and uh, tonight we'll be celebrating Reformation Day, and uh, it's big in our neighborhood, I tell you that every year, it's a big deal in our neighborhood. So uh, it is Reformation Day, it was in 1517 on this day. My friend Marty Luther took took issue with a few uh, of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church which, uh, you know, in 1517, that was a big, big deal. Uh, long story short, he basically said, if Jesus died to secure merits for people, we shouldn't have to pay the Pope to get him. That's a super short version of 95 Theses. He would later, I think, even adjust some of the things he said in there to, to give greater gospel clarity. But basically, he said, hold on a second, I think we've missed it. Now, it got him into some hot, you know, hot water uh, with Pope Leo X. And so, what happened was, uh, there was... A diet, okay, there was an imperial diet every two years uh, in that uh, aspect of the, the, um, the uh, Holy Roman Empire, kind of at the time. Anyway, so they would, it's basically like, you know, Congress. And so they, they called Marty Luther to come and to testify at the Diet of Worms, not worms, worms. <laughs> worms is a place, okay, so, uh, in Germany. So that was where the diet was being held. It, it took place over the course of many months. And so uh, Luther comes. Now, the reason why they wanted him to come was not to testify. They wanted him to just basically receive their rebuke. And this was a a day and age in which the government had the final say in all religious matters. And so they wanted Marty Luther to pipe down, to take back what he had written up to that point, and to get in line. And so that was what they they called him to do. And so in a very dramatic moment, he is called there. And they put all his books on a table. This is absolutely true. They put all his books on a table, and they're like, okay, recant of all this stuff that you've written. And he was like, well, not so fast because it's not all, like some of it, yeah, I was maybe, you know, I was a little too harsh in what I wrote or maybe there's greater clarity that could be added. So some things I think I could recant, uh, you know, and and take back. But other things, he said, I said that are, are totally agreed upon by everybody. Even everybody here would agree up with them. So I shouldn't recant of those because then I'd be recanting of what's true, which is ridiculous. And they they didn't want that, right? So they said, you need to recant of all of it. And he said, well, give me, give me some time. So they gave him a few days to consider his answer. And then he came back, and he gave that answer, basically what I just said. And then they said, enough with the showmanship. Do you recant or don't you? Like, right now, say it. Yes or no? And Luther said, if I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture, if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I cannot nor will not recant. Anything. Here I stand; I can do no other. You know, we—I read that, and it's such a powerful moment in history. Uh, the fact is, the Lord sovereignly ordained for political circumstances to be such that Luther was protected, and he did that for the advancement of the cause of the gospel. He did that for the preservation of his word, right, and all of that. But I, I read that statement, and I describe to you those circumstances. And I would just tell you this, that to our culture today, what Luther did at that moment seems crazy. Because he was risking his life. Uh, 99 out of 100 times, anybody answers the diet like that, the emperor sitting right there. The emperor would basically issue the order for their execution. And that would have been it. And if it wasn't right there at that moment, it would have been later. In fact, when Luther was on his way home, he was kidnapped by one of his friends and taken to hide in a castle for two years just till the situation could calm down but it had to be an undisclosed location because his life was so much in danger. But if I told you today that, listen, you're going to be in a circumstance at work, at school, you're going to be in a circumstance in, in life where you're going to either stand on the word of God or you're going to possibly die, right? To say that I would take that stand based on my conviction that this word is indeed the word of God, that I would do that no matter what, to our culture, seems like crazy talk. Why would you risk your life for something you believe why would you risk your life for something as movable and subjective as religion? That's what the culture believes. Just change your religion. Just, just edit your faith. And I just wonder if we haven't lost something in this cultural environment as far as a personal commitment to listen to and respond rightly to the Word of God. There's a reason why we do it the way we do it here. Why it's important that we open the Bible together, that we read it together. Because what's going on in a gathered body of followers of Jesus, ideally, is not a submission to a human authority, but it's a collective submission to God through his word. We, we confess, we believe that this is the actual word of God, that he has actually spoken to us in it. That what is here is inspired by His Spirit for our spiritual and practical instruction. And there is no greater authority than the Word of God. That is our conviction, right? Which is why we do it the way we do it. Sometimes God's Word gets lost in the shuffle. I wonder, is that you today? We're busy. We're busy. I wonder if some of us haven't lost God's Word in the busyness of our lives. Well, the story this morning we read in 1 Kings 22 about young King Josiah is about a time when, yes, Israel had, specifically Judah, had lost the word of God. (laughs) But guess what? By God's grace, somebody found it. Let's look together here at chapter 22 of 2 Kings. Verses 1 and 2, we read, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in all the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn to the right or the left. Now, if we pause here, you need to just remember a few details from recent history, okay, in 2 Kings. Josiah is the son of Manasseh. Manasseh was the worst king ever, right? He, he, he led the, the, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom there. He led them in absolute Hagan like resurgence it was really really bad and more on that from last week so you can go back and check that out in second kings 21 now his reign he actually gets deported and taken to babylon early so his son is very young and so josiah as we read in verse one he's eight years old when he actually becomes king which means of course he had caretakers and i'm just telling you what by again by god's kind sovereign hand the caretakers for josiah they were lovers of god And so this kid, despite his father's absolute rebellion against God, this kid apparently grew up valuing what his father had lost. Maybe he heard stories of his grandfather Hezekiah. You'll remember that his grandfather Hezekiah was, on the whole, a very good king. And so maybe there was some of that there, but nonetheless, we get this very positive evaluation in verse 2. He did what was right in the Lord's sight. Don't get that much in Kings. We got it. He walked in all the ways of his ancestor David, meaning he walked by faith. And then finally, though, there's a little added statement in verse 2, and this is unusual in Kings so far. The evaluation here says, He did not turn to the right nor to the left. Now, this statement is often used in Scripture as a moral, like, uh, evaluation of somebody. If you don't turn to the right or the left, you're staying on the right path. That's the theory, right? But specifically, this wording is taken from Deuteronomy 17, okay? And at the end of Deuteronomy 17, there's this section in God's law. This is way before Israel ever had kings. And God said, one of these days, you're going to want a king. You're going to install a king. And so then he gave instructions to the king about what he was supposed to do and not do. Not to marry foreign wives, not to build a huge army, to trust the Lord, to remain pure and worshiping God. But then the king was supposed to take a copy of God's law, and and he was supposed to make his own personal copy and handwrite it in the sight of the priests. And he was supposed to do that so that the priests knew that the king knew what the word of God was. And then the king was supposed to lead the people in fearing God, walking by faith, and heeding his word. That was the calling. And it was so that the people would veer neither to the right nor to the left. And that same wording is used here. That Josiah himself was a king who did not turn, he did not veer to the right or to the left. I wonder this morning, I wonder if we're veering a little bit. I wonder if our alignment is off. You know, my car has one of those uh, alarms that tells you when you're veering out of the lane, and it like beeps at you. It doesn't like my driving habits, whatever. <laughs> I wonder if we had one of those spiritually, if it wouldn't be just a little helpful. You know, hello, <laughs> hey, even I'm a computer, and I know the lane line is right there. Like, that's the deal. I wonder if we're veering Are you veering to the right or to the left? I think there's a moment this morning where as we come into, especially this passage, we need to be honest about our failures. Be honest. I mean, if you're going to grow spiritually, you have to accurately diagnose the situation in your life. And too often we're running too fast and we're too distracted and maybe we're too afraid of what we're going to find out to just slow down and just say, hey, wait a minute. Have I veered here? what am I doing? Have I I lost track to the right or to the left? Be honest about your spiritual condition, about your perhaps spiritual failures. The fact is, most of our failures are going to track with our culture, and that's going to be true on either side of kind of the the middle ground there. On the one side, you have a, a big chunk of our culture, the majority of our culture today, rejecting the Word of God. We don't need it, or accepting it with conditions. I accept the word of God as long as I can edit out certain portions that I don't like. And I can rewrite how it talks about gender or sexual fulfillment. I can rewrite how God talks about what I'm called to write in my own personal uh, pursuit of him. So one side of our culture is like, yeah, you know, either reject God entirely or just accept God as long as I can edit and he can be, he can say what I want him to say. So sometimes our veering is veering that way, where we veer Off of the path that God has called us to, and our sin is going to look like the sin of the culture. I wonder, are you struggling this morning by demanding that God accept you on your terms rather than on his terms? Of course, in our culture, we also have another side where, unfortunately, today, often people are trying to make God serve their agenda, a political agenda. And they have sanctified God by aligning him with right-wing politics, right? And so, yeah, you got one side where they're editing the Bible and saying, we don't need any of this yet. You got the other side saying, oh, yeah, God's a Republican. And trying to use the Bible to sanitize their political goals. And God has a lot of things. I guarantee you he's not a Republican. But our sin, we're going to track with the culture. So have you veered? Have you veered by insulting our governors that God has installed rather than praying for them? Have you sinned by worshiping entertainment and making it your primary purpose of existence? Have you sinned by caring more about what everyone thinks of you rather than what God thinks of you? Have you sinned by following our cultural descent into flagrant sexual sin as the norm? Have you sinned by engaging in gossip or slander to advance your own cause? Have you sinned by allowing greed to be your primary motivator on a daily life? It's really easy to veer to the right or to the left. And we just need to be honest. Now, here's the deal. Praise God, Josiah didn't veer much. Watch verse 3. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent the court secretary, Shaphan, son of Zaliah, son of Meshulam, to the Lord's temple, saying to Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem, saying, Go up to the high priest Hilkiah, so that he may total up the silver brought into the Lord's temple. The silver the doorkeepers have collected from the people. It is to be given to those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. They are in turn to give it to the workmen in the Lord's temple to repair the damage. They are to give it to the carpenters. Builders and masons to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the temple. But no accounting is to be, be required from them for the silver given to them since they work with integrity. Pause right there, at verse 7. What does this have to do with anything? Okay, josiahs uh, he's 18 now, or, eight, or excuse me, 18th year of his, ki- of his kingship. Yeah, so he's 18 years old, and uh, he's, now he's flexing his muscles a little, okay? He's coming into his own, and he's like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to repair God's temple, Which had not been done. Remember, under his father's reign, Manasseh, the Lord's temple had been vandalized. It had been turned into a pagan worship site on multiple levels. And there had been damage done, apparently, in the midst of all this. And so, uh, potentially, when when his father was taken uh, into early exile. So, Josiah says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take all that money that they're collecting every week in the temple. And we're going to actually put that money to use. Make sure it actually gets to the workers to actually get the work done of actually repairing the temple. This is all very good news. And, and there's a, certainly a restoration of the temple that Josiah is after here. I just I just want to tell you that uh, even in this moment where he invests in the temple, he is leaning the right direction, isn't he? he? He is valuing God in his execution of his reign over Israel. He's saying, listen, we're going to put God first. And so we're going to take these offerings, and we're not just going to save them. We're going to actually put them to use and get after repairing God's temple. This is this is a really good move. And it leads to something even better because verse 8, so they're doing that. They're doing this repair work in the temple. Then the priest, high, high priest Hilkiah, this is verse 8, told the court secretary Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Okay, pause right there. Many commentators believe this was the book of Deuteronomy. Others believe it was the entire Pentateuch. We don't know for sure whether it was just one part or maybe a, a bigger chunk, maybe even the whole thing. Hilkiah, the high priest, found the law. He found it. Where did he find it? In the closet. I don't know. It was, it was there somewhere, right? It had been lost. Now, sometimes in the popular retelling of this event, we talk about, how, oh, it had been lost for generations. That's not true. Most likely, it had only been lost since his father's reign, Manasseh. Because Hezekiah, Josiah's grandfather, had been a very good king and actually had lived out much of God's law in his reign over God's people. So Hezekiah, no doubt, had knowledge of the law of God. So it wasn't like they forgot it existed. But when Manasseh was king, in pursuit of idolatry, he said, take the law and hide it, perhaps. I don't want to hear about what God says in Deuteronomy. I certainly don't want to hear about Deuteronomy 17, Just take this thing and get rid of it. And whether he said that explicitly or it just happened uh, as a natural result of his focus on idolatry, one way or another, during his father's reign, during Josiah's father's reign, the law was temporarily lost. And of course, spiritual downfall ensued. Manasseh sold the nation on on idolatry on worshiping these false gods again and reversing Hezekiah's reforms. So, (laughs) Hilkiah, now look, Okay, so Hilkiah either found it in the closet or possibly also he knew where it was. And so maybe maybe he's like, now's my chance. Josiah's investing money in the temple. Now's my chance. Hey, look what I found, right? And so he gives it to... The, to the court secretary, Shaphan. So the court secretary's job is to now deliver this to the king. Verse 9, then the court, the court secretary, Shaphan, went to the king and reported, your servants have emptied out the silver that was found in the temple and have given it to those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. We're doing what you asked us to. Awesome. Verse 10, then the court secretary, Shaphan, told the king, the priest Hilkiah has given me a book. Now I got to tell you, in the original in this sentence and actually the previous one uh, when he says in verse 8, I found the book, it's emphatic. The book is the first thing in the sentence. It's emphasized the book of the law. Like, we found something very important, and it's this book, right? So here he's like, we found a book. Or, hey, the book we found. I think maybe in English it doesn't read as important as it feels in Hebrew. But nonetheless, we, we, got, we got it. And Shaphan then read this book in the presence of the king, verse 10. So verse 11, how does Josiah respond? When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Why? That's an act of mourning. Why? Because as Shaphan read the words from the book of the law, the result was Josiah and his people were shown to be in error. They were tolerating things they shouldn't have tolerated. They were actively pursuing things they shouldn't have been actively pursuing. They were saying and doing things that the, the people of God should never say or do. And so he, was, he mourned the fact that the law was exposing their sin, their idolatry, and their, their failure. Watch verse 12. So then he commanded the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, the court secretary of Shaphan, and the king's servant Isaiah. What did he tell them to do? Go and inquire of the Lord for me, pursue the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah about the words in this book that has been found. Why? For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in order to do everything written about us. He recognizes that the book of the law, it's not a book just about God, it's about us. And he says, go inquire of the Lord. Go pursue a prophet who will be able to tell us what should we do in light of what this book says. Because we need to respond. And so there's this mission to then go and seek out help. He acknowledges that God's wrath is, is great because of their failure to obey the book of the law. And he says, our ancestors failed and failed. While Hezekiah hadn't failed on everything, he succeeded in most parts, his father Manasseh had failed more dramatically than anybody else. And so maybe he was just thinking about that previous generation. Maybe he was going back all the way back to the wilderness. But one way or another, he said, man, we've blown it here. So how does he respond? He repents. You see, repentance, right, is the right response to the Word of God. And so there's this moment here where Josiah reclaims the word of God for himself as for his people. And so in reclaiming the word, what does that result in? It results in repentance. Reclaiming the word results in repentance. He grabs a hold once again of this word of God and he says, I need, to, I need to respond in kind. I need to respond as the word calls us to respond. And when he looked at the word, he saw his failure. He saw his people's failure and he repented. He tore his clothes. He said, seek the Lord because we're in trouble. It's really interesting to me also that he, when he says, go inquire of the Lord, he says, for me, for the people and for all Judah. You might think, you know, for me, for my family and for the nation, perhaps. Like, you know, he sees the relevance of the Word of God to him personally, and then to his family, his clan, and then, of course, then to the entire nation. And he says, we've got a problem, and we need to pursue the Lord together. Reclaiming the Word results in repentance. Listen, I just want to encourage you this morning. Maybe you're here, and you've lost sight of God's Word in your life, but today, reclaim it. You grab hold of God's Word, And you say, this is never ending up in the closet again. And what does that look like? It looks like repenting over our sin. It's repentance that's the right response. Reclaiming the word results in repentance. Take some practical steps here. I I like the investment in the temple because it's basically Josiah putting himself in a situation where good things can happen. No one, listen, no one's ever said, all right, you know what? I really regretted pursuing God more in my life. Like, it really backfired on me. Like, it didn't work out. Like, no one's saying that. Because when we pursue the Lord, when we put ourselves in situations where we can grow spiritually, we will benefit. We will grow. It doesn't always look like exactly how we want it to, but man, God is at work. And so here, Josiah puts himself in a situation where he can grow. That's why, can I just, a little side note, that's why we come to church to gather together, even when we maybe stayed up too late watching the Braves win last night okay like someone in this congregation did I'm not going to name names lindsay but uh, you know like, like 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 that like that when that happens why why do we gather when it's like i had a i've got a big week coming up and i could use a few extra hours of sleep why do you get up and come because you want to put yourself in a situation where good spiritual things are going to happen and that's what josiah was doing in investing in the temple it's like, why I read the Bible, not every day when I read the Bible, I don't feel like, you know, the spiritual, you know, warm fuzzies. Like, it's just, sometimes my heart's not in it. But yeah, I I need to put myself in a situation where good things are going to happen spiritually. That's why we value care groups. That's why we engage in Bible study. That's why we refuse to just be casual followers of Jesus a few hours a week. Because we want to put ourselves in situations where good things can happen spiritually. We want to reclaim that word. Now, here's the deal. If you're here this morning and you need to reclaim the word, but you're hesitant, often we will use our age as an excuse. Now, that's just not going to fly. That's just not going to fly. Children, okay, if you're in here, preteens, if you're in this room right now, take advantage of your young, fertile minds and memorize the word of God. You memorize those verses. You are going to need them, young people. And if you pursue the Lord now, good things will happen. Spiritually, you will grow, and God will bless you. He promises to do it. You reclaim that word, young people. Teenagers, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to make a joke about it, okay? You need God's word. You need to claim God's word for yourself. And I know your parents are telling you this is good for you, or your grandparents are telling you this is good for you, but it's not because they're telling you it's good for you that you need God's word. You need God's word because it's God's word. And you need it because God loves you. He loves you even more than your parents or grandparents do. And don't believe the lie of our culture when they try to sell you everything else that's going to make you happy. Teenagers, if you spent half the time investing in pursuing God and reading His Word that you spend on video games, entertainment, and social media, you would be amazed at what God will do in your life. Put your phone down. Get your Bible out. College students, young adults just got to tell you, that's a particular age group where our culture has focused its attack. Just to say, you know what? You're finally at an age where you can decide for yourself, you don't need God. And all the things he tells you about, about who, you are, who you are and what you're called to in life, in this book, they're all outdated. And they need to be updated. And can I just tell you that the right response to God's word is not to edit God's word or rewrite it, but you reclaim God's word, Okay and you repent of your sin. You are not bulletproof, and you will find out pretty quickly that you're not. You might feel like you are, but you're not. You're going to be getting married. You're going to be buying houses. You're going to be making big decisions in your life. What better time of your life to double down on pursuit of God than when you're making those decisions? Middle-age folks. <laughs> We're starting to feel it, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. I put myself in that category. You're welcome. We're all here together. We're not as fast as we used to be. We need a little more rest than we used to, don't we? And sometimes in middle age, we get distracted on the retirement account balance. Or the, well, that's not what it was like in my generation, right? But folks, listen, there's there's a lot of distractions for us. And sometimes when we get to middle age, our fears get bigger. And we have a moment to maybe just reclaim the Word of God. And say, you know what? I'm not going to let this, this central portion of my life, when God's blessed me with experience, right? I'm not going to let this little middle portion of my life go by without remembering what it is that I'm called to. Maybe you need a little reorientation there in middle age. Just say, okay, Lord, I'm yours. How can I serve you now with changing circumstances in my life? The rest of us. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. You are the wisest among us. And you're hitting retirement, and there's this lie in the culture that says, retirement's all about you. You can finally do what you want to do. Just put you first. And can I just encourage you that your retirement is not all about you. It's all about Jesus. And yes, he's going to free you up in some new ways to serve him. But don't let your retirement become all about golf, and you forget about the Word of God. Don't let it become all about grandkids, And you forget about the legacy you're going to leave to those grandkids. Don't let it become all about finally taking that trip that you've always wanted to take and forgetting what God has called you to on a daily basis. You know, retirement is a sweet spot in life where actually God does enable us to serve him in so many unique ways. But too often we're wasting that time, chasing what the world has sold us will satisfy. Listen, reclaiming the word, results in repentance. Maybe you're missing it a little bit this morning. Repentance looks specifically here like pursuing the Lord. There's a tearing of clothes, which is Josiah's uh, acknowledgement that he's been wrong. He and the people are wrong, so he's acknowledging that. But then there's also the action where he says... Now let's go. go. Let's chase the Lord a little bit here. Let's get after this. And notice how he says it again, for me, for my people, for my nation. You might just ask yourself that exact same question. What does it look like for me to pursue the Lord personally, whoever you are? But then you might ask, what does it look like for me to help my family pursue the Lord? And what, it doesn't matter what your role is in the family. You can ask, okay, with whomever I live, okay, how do we pursue the Lord together? What does that look like for us as a family Or even as a church, as a corporate family, how do I contribute to us pursuing the Lord together and not letting go of God's word and not relegating it to the closet? Even for our nation, we can ask this question. It's so interesting to think about this. What hope do we have as a nation? Okay, our hope as a nation does not lie in a political solution. It lies in this, individuals being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about the word of God doing its work in people. And so do we have hope as a nation? Of course we have hope. As long as people have access to this message, there's hope. And so we might ask, well, how can I help pursue the Lord in my specific circumstances? Now, Josiah finds the law. His his emissaries find the law because he was making good decisions. All this. He repents. The right thing to do. Pursue the Lord. Absolutely. He's going to lead the people in repentance. It's totally going to happen but it wasn't enough. Watch verse 14. They find the prophet. In this case, a prophetess. Verse 14. So the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, Achbor, Shaphan, and Esaiah went to the prophetess Huldah, wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. They spoke with her. They don't know why particularly they went to Huldah other than she may have been the closest prophet geographically available. Nonetheless, she gave the word of the Lord here. Verse 15. She said to them, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Say to the man who sent you to me. That's the king. Tell the king this. This is what the Lord says. I am about to bring disaster on this place and all its inhabitants. Fulfilling all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods in order to anger me with all the work of their hands. My wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. Okay, just pause right there. We were looking for maybe a different ending, right? Like in the fairy tale version, that Josiah finds the law, lost in the closet, he repents, leads the people in repentance, dun, da, 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 you will no longer be judged. But here's the fact there was no amount of obedience, there was no about, amount of repentance, there was no amount of work. That Josiah could do, or the people could do, to solve the problem of their sin. The same reasons that they deserved to be judged before were still a problem. They had worshiped false gods, that was a reality. They had the work of their hands in verse 17, the, the idols, they had built these idols. And so the hold Holda says, sorry, it's still going down. But with a little grace, watch verse 18. Say this to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. As for the words you have heard, right in the law, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore... I will indeed gather you to your ancestors, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing on this place. Then they reported to the king. There was fruit from Josiah's repentance in that God would not bring the judgment during his reign. He would die in peace, meaning he would die uh, without experiencing the, the exile that God had decreed about the people. So there was a slight deferment of God's judgment here. But here's the reality. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to, to take care of the sin problem. And as awesome as Josiah was, and in, in speaking just in purely human terms here, he was probably the best king. In fact, in 23, we'll see he was the best king. But he still couldn't be good enough to remove this judgment. That wasn't for him to accomplish. There was a greater son of David yet to come. See, as good as Josiah was, he wasn't the best. And the fact is, there's an anticipation here. If you're reading 2 Kings, you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. He finally did all the right things. Even coming off the heels of his father, like like Hezekiah, like this is it. He's finally there and he's doing what's right. And he's reclaimed the word of God and he's repented. Like, isn't this enough? But Josiah was not capable of solving the problem of Israel's sin. They needed another son of David. You see, reclaiming God's word results in repentance because of redemption, not to cause redemption. The the fact is, there's this greater work that God is doing that Josiah couldn't accomplish. And so when we keep reading in the Bible, we read in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4 specifically, what the law could not do, Since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Think about that for a moment. Josiah finds the law, and he rightly calls the people to grab hold of God's word and to repent and to respond rightly. But that work in submitting to God's word and to to acknowledging God's authority and changing their lives as a result, right? That work that could not do what they needed. They needed forgiveness, and obeying the law couldn't do it. And so Paul says, Paul says, what the law could not do, God did. He goes on. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled and us to do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's the reality. Jesus died for our failure to keep the law. He died for our failure to to hold on to God's law and to live in light of it. And by his death, we are not only forgiven of our failure to keep the law, we are now equipped to live for his glory by a new law. And so here, we're not just passing out the first five books of the Bible, are we? We're giving you the entirety of the Old and New Testaments because we need the rest of the story where we find out that our hope is not in obeying God's commands by our own efforts. Our hope is in Jesus who perfectly fulfilled the law and who died for our failures. And now what? Now he calls us to walk by his spirit living in light of the full revelation of his word. You see, if you don't read the whole Bible, you could get it really wrong. Because the message of the Bible is not keep the Ten Commandments and then God will let you into heaven. That is the fundamental way people in our culture, they think, what that, they think that's what the Bible says. Keep the Ten Commandments, you'll get into heaven. Okay? That is, it's, the Bible says you can't keep the Ten Commandments. But it says what the law could not do, God did. He did it through the greater Son. He did it through the best king. And so guess what? We talked about it earlier, but maybe you're here and you're, you're feeling it like I'm veering, Pastor Ryan, I have I've veered to the right, I have veered to the left. I know I'm not in obedience to the Lord in this area. And you're just feeling like the judgment of the law exposing the sin and repentance. I've blown it so, so much. And I'm feeling the shame and the guilt that goes with that. But don't sit there in that guilt. Here's what you do. You recognize that what the law could never do, Jesus did. And so, yes, you may have veered to the right or the left, but if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. So let's go. You grab hold of God's word, his complete word, and let's go. Let's live in light of what Jesus has done for us. You see, reclaiming the word results in repentance because of redemption, not in order to cause it, but because it's already a thing. So we don't say, hey, I should change so that God will forgive me. We say, wait a minute. In Christ, the greater Josiah, God has forgiven me. So let's go. Let's live for his glory. You don't need the Ten Commandments. What? Shocking. The Apostle Paul said so. You don't need the Ten Commandments. You have the Spirit of God to lead you in loving God and loving people every day. You have it. And the Spirit is leading you here. And so, you know, sometimes we get so task oriented and I think it's right and good for us in light of this passage to say, yes, we reclaim God's word. But we don't reclaim God's word as a to-do list to earn salvation. We reclaim God's word as the revelation of what Jesus has done for us as the greater Josiah. And now we're equipped to live in light of that truth and to run for his glory. Reclaim the word, why? Because redemption Because of the redemption we already have. You've veered to the right or the left. I certainly have. Jesus didn't. And because he paid for our failures, right, there's no condemnation for us. Because he paid for our failures and has gifted us his spirit, we have what we need to move forward. So take this book and read it the whole thing. right? The complete message. Take this book and, and confess, I, or and make a commitment. I'm not going to relegate it to the closet or the shelf. I'm going to hold on to this book. So I don't know what that looks like for you specifically. I do know this. The reason why it was lost in Josiah's time is because Manasseh, his father, wouldn't read it with him. Hey dads, if you've never read the Bible with your family, Jesus died to facilitate that. And yes, we wish we had done it more, absolutely, but today's a new day. Don't be Manasseh. Don't be the dad who kept the Bible in the closet and his son had to find it later. Don't be the dad who at your funeral, after they're going through all your belongings, they find your Bible. And it's like, oh wow, I didn't know he had a Bible. I didn't know he read this Bible. Hey moms, listen, there's so much out there to read and process and there's so much social media. We have so much access to so much information. But can I just encourage you? These are the words you need the most. These are the words your family needs the most. And young people, you're never too young to get a taste for how good Jesus is. So these words are for you. These words are for me. Not to tell us, do this and do that, and then God will be happy with you. But words of genuine hope that say, you know what? You may have blown it, but Jesus died to rescue you. And left to yourself, there is condemnation. (laughs) But Jesus did what the law never could. And so for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Let's reclaim the word. Let's repent when we fail. But let's do that not to earn God's favor, but because we already have it in Christ. Please pray with me. We'll ask God to help us. Lord, we pause again this morning in light of this remarkable passage. And Lord, we there's just a need, I think, in light of this chapter to confess perhaps our veering. Maybe we veered to the right or the left today. And it's not a maybe, Lord. We know we have. And Lord, perhaps we've lost sight of your word and it's, it's tucked away somewhere in like a back corner of our lives in a closet, something like that, Lord, and we just have not grabbed hold of it. Lord, we pray and ask that we would be inspired by the example of Josiah, that we would put ourselves in situations where positive things can happen spiritually. Lord, that we would be people who when, when we do refine your word, that we would cling to it and that we would repent of our sin. Lord, we think about his example, humbling his heart and, and weeping before you and, and turning from that wrong. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that in our response. But Lord, in all of this, we ask that you would help us to be so clear that we're not changing so that you will forgive us. We're changing because you already have forgiven us in Christ. Lord, may we treasure your word because it is the revelation of who you are and what you are doing in this universe. May we also treasure it for what it means for us. Yes, it exposes our sin, but it also ministers the sweet, sweet truths of the gospel. Lord, I pray especially for those who are here this morning who know that they have been neglecting your word and they are not pursuing you. And I pray that you would transform them today That they would repent of their independence today. And that they would open up your word and run hard after you. And Lord, may we do it not with a sense of obligation, but with a sense of joy. Because Lord Jesus, you died for our sins and rose from the dead. You did what the law could never do. And we confess that by faith in you, we are safe from condemnation. We thank you. We ask for your help to live now in light of your truth. Teach us by your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.